welcome to The Contrarians, where we are right and you are wrong. I'm Julio. And I'm Alex. Here on the show, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. For the first half of each episode, Contrarians Corner, we trash the fresh red tomatoes and praise the rotten green splotches, making our case any way we can. The aptly titled Real Talk serves as the second half of each episode. This is where we discuss our true feelings on the movie we're covering. For more information on our podcast and to browse past episodes, you can head over to our website, wearethecontrarians.com. From there, you can also access our patron and merchandise, because capitalism. If you enjoy our attempts at comedic film discussions, we encourage you to subscribe and leave us a review on whatever podcatcher you use. If you'd like to reach out to us directly, that's what social media is for. You can find us on most platforms as at Contrarian Prime. You can also see what we look like if you go to youtube.com slash at Contrarian Prime, and you can contact us by email at wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. I think that covers it. Then it's time for the podcast. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for your name. Not my name, Alex. Your name. Your name, period. That's the movie title. There's a period at the end of it. Oh, is there? Mm-hmm. Are you sure? I'm sure it's not just some Japanese character that looks like a period. I guess it could be. Who's to say at this point, really? Um, but yes, Uncharted Territory. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians. We're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. Typically, our international fanfare comes from my co-host, who's Peruvian. He's an immigrant <laughs> to the United States. That's usually where I question different cultures and say, Julio, is this like it is back in Peru? Is this what you're used to? I don't think that's going to come into play today, Julio. We're dealing with, like I said, I already used the phrase uncharted territory, but just altogether, this is um, uh, a new horizon for us. You and I are not too steeped in uh, Japanese culture. I mean, I, I know what I know of the Japanese culture predominantly comes from uh, my vast knowledge of professional wrestling and MMA, but you know, anime is not really something I'd fuck with too often. And uh, I, I think you're in a similar uh, vehicle, similar camp, what have you to this. We're, uh, we're stepping outside of our comfort zone today. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty sad when I am the one in the room that has the most anime knowledge. <laughs> so I think I have uh, a little bit more than you, but not a whole lot. So Yes, definitely, definitely uncharted territory for the show. Uh, we don't do animated movies very often. We've done um, Aladdin, and we've done uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. That was it, right? Oh, and Nightmare for Christmas, our first episode mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. Uh, still, out of like over three hundred episodes, <laughs> including bonuses, that is a fraction of a fraction. So uh, that's number one. Number two, yes, uh, I don't think we've done any Japanese movies that I can think of. And then you combine them in Japanese animation. Yes, definitely not the Contreras wheelhouse. But, you know, leave it to our patrons to push us out of our comfort zone. Perfect segue, Julio. I was about to ask, so why are we discussing the 2016 hit, Your Name? Why did this come across our desk? Well, this is courtesy of uh, patron Robert Stewart. He of uh, the Stu World Order who last time he gave us a movie to watch, it was the original Dawn of the Dead, which is more on brand with what I associate with Stu, right? Like he's 
he's a horror guy. He he. I think that every week he has a new article on his website about Friday the 13th. So that kind of <laughs> tracks. I did not know that he was into Japanese animation. And I don't know why that seems uncharacteristic. It's uh, like, a, you know, he's like Shrek. I just peeled a layer. <laughs> he's an onion. <laughs> I just peeled a horror fan layer. And it turns out that he's an animation fan. I don't know why this... Surprised me. I mean, you've interacted with Stu. Did mm-hmm. he strike you as as a? Oh God, what is the name that they have for uh, fans of Japanese animation? Otaku's, Trekkies. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy Stu more like as a Trekkie before I buy him as a as a Japanese animation fan. As he doesn't strike fan. you as very kawaii, isn't that the? <laughs> That's very what? Kawaii. That's a term, right? Hey, I hear you. otaku. A young person who is obsessed with computers or particular aspects of popular culture to the detriment of their social skills. Okay, so no, <laughs> this is this is a, a kind of an insult. Kawaii is cute in Japanese. In Japanese, the word kawaii has a meaning that sits more or less at the juncture of cute, tiny, or lovable. The cute okay. aesthetic, with its bold, nearly cartoon-like lines and round, rounded forms, informs a large segment of Japanese pop culture. Well, I mean, at, at the risk of exposing my ignorance, I feel like that describes 99% of a Japanese animation I've encountered. <laughs> so. I was about to say, too, the literal meaning of the word denotes lovable. So Stu's lovable. So I'm sure he wouldn't be disappointed okay. in being described as kawaii. He might be disappointed, at the very least, by Contrast Corner, because uh, we are going to trash this movie pretty thoroughly and i he already played his cards he knows that he, he's expressed how much he loves it and um you know he, he better brace himself because this baby is 98 percent. Th- i feel like the higher the tomato meter score the harder we have to go at it yeah and there this is going to lend itself to an interesting second half i think we'll talk more uh seriously and less uh in jest about our experience and relationships with um, Japanese media and specifically anime and also um, researching this movie was a bit mind-blowing. So looking forward to getting to that. But first, as you mentioned, Contrarian's Corner, 98% uh, financially and critically. This was a massive success. Julio, of the reviews and quotes you went through, what, uh, what did you decide to pull to read off to start us off here? Some mornings, I wake up crying without knowing why. That sort of thing happens now and again. It's a sea of red tomatoes <laughs> on your name's Red Tomatoes page. Uh, so picked four. I'm going to start with Dan Webster from The Spokesman Review, Washington, who says, Your name is a treasure that, even if the first half hour felt confusing to my own Western-educated mind, is well worth the investment of a near two-hour view. Alex, an animated movie that's almost two hours. How does that feel? A bit sacrilegious, you know? Mask of the Phantasm is an hour and 17 minutes, I believe. And that's one of the greatest movies of all time. So I don't know what your problem is, your name. Thinking you're better than that, that you need an additional 40 minutes on top. Dumbo, 60 minutes. Goes straight to the heart. I think uh, the first Toy Story is an hour and 20 minutes. I mean, come on. Would it be more egregious if your name was made in America? We'd be like, okay, well. We've come to understand this. This is how we do things now. Yes. <laughs> All right, next. 
Daniel Barnes from Sacramento News and Review says it's a rare work of art that can base an extraordinarily powerful moment of emotional catharsis on compulsive boob squeezing. That's the miracle of this movie. Uh, A lot of boob squeezing, that's for sure. Yes. It's odd that you write a whole review about your name and the quote you pick for your Rotten Tomatoes (laughs) display is the one about the boob squeezing. bit Freudian. (laughs) He's just... Aiming for the the lowest common denominator here. Next, Luke T. Harrington from Christianity Today says, I left the theater feeling as if I had just woken from a beautiful, indescribable dream, desperately fighting to keep it from fading from memory. Oh, I get it because of the movie. That's a pivotal part of the plot. Or maybe maybe he just uh, he had one too many gummies. His early onset dementia, perhaps. (laughs) This was the last review that Luke T. Harrington <laughs> sent to Christianity Today. Uh, we're going to close with Josh Larson from Larson on Film, who says, feels something like Charlie Kaufman anime. That is going to give me nightmares. <laughs> well, that right there is going to earn points for your name against it, you know, in spite of itself, that this guy has to bring Charlie Kaufman into this for no reason. There is an animated Charlie Kaufman movie. It's not Japanese animation. It's Charlie Kaufman animation. So stop motion. Animalisa? Was that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah, it's out there. You get uh, stop motion cunnilingus, if I remember correctly. (laughs) Yes. Do not bring that filth into this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Boob squeezing. That's as far as your name goes. You're right about the period because these quotes were like throwing me off. Every time that they mentioned the, the title, there's a period there and... You know, the punctuation doesn't match the paragraph. People drunk tweeting, you know, that's <laughs> their finger slip. And that, like, that's a surefire sign of drunk tweeting is random periods and capitalized letters. The guy doing the subtitles for your name just hit the space bar twice every time. Well, there's a good place to start off. We both sounds like watch the dubbed version. And where did you watch this, Julio? Do you have a Crunchyroll subscription? Whoa, 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 wait. What makes you think I watched the dubbed version? Oh, you just brought up the subtitles. Yeah, so I watched the subtitled version. Oh, duh. But yeah, I by default, my YouTube goes to subtitles on. The The version I rented on YouTube was the English dubbed. Okay, okay. Well, I I actually, it's funny, Alex. My, my wife is a big Japanese animation fan. She's a big Miyazaki fan and Studio Ghibli. And so... By default, that means that I own most of the Miyazaki movies, and, and we'll get into that a little bit more in, in real talk. But what that means is also that uh, sometimes people that know her will gift her movies, and sometimes one of those people is me, and sometimes one of those people is somebody in her family. That's how I figured that we ended up with two copies of Your Name. We own it. <laughs> <laughs> we own it on streaming and Amazon, and we also own like the physical copy, like a Blu-ray, and. Uh, I went to bed. I was going to bed last night. I was like, you know what? It's a movie I haven't seen. It's a movie that seems to matter a lot to Stu. So I'm going to do that thing where I try to watch it twice. I'm going to watch it here, going to bed, and then I'll, I'll watch it for notes tomorrow. And I obviously, I was in bed, so I just fired up on my computer. So I'm going for the Amazon version, and that's the dubbed one. There's no option for subtitles. I was just like English or nothing. And I watched about 20 minutes of it, and I was like, I can't. I feel bad. I, I, I feel like all my... my my posturing about listening in the original language, I'm being a little hypocritical here. So so I stopped. And then today I just watched the entire movie on the disc. And that was that has the option of using the Japanese track with 
English subtitles. So English subtitles, dude, <laughs> on Blu-ray. <laughs> I do not have a Crunchyroll subscription, but that would have been my my go-to because they have a seven-day free trial. I figured that's what you were going to do. I always forget about that shit, man. I stopped doing that a few years ago because I, I would do that for some movies we did. And then, you know, two months later, be like, man, I paid $10. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, impressive snake. You committed to it. Uh, I did not. But we'll talk about that more uh, in the second half. And I want to go ahead and guess that it probably didn't affect our viewings too much because the dubbing was taken pretty seriously. What, um, I, what I watched the first 15, 20 minutes I watched dubbed seemed accurate uh even to down to the the pitch of the dubbing you know the voices and the the, the characters sounded the same when i started watching it in, in japanese it was like oh it's just like they got the same actors <laughs> i'm sure they didn't but still it was uh yeah i don't i don't anticipate a whole lot of uh discrepancies in the way that we experience the movie and even if there was something that got lost in translation either by the dubbing or the subtitles. I don't think it matters because I don't think this movie is meant to make much sense anyway. <laughs> Lost in translation, I understand the confusion because that movie also takes place in Japan, but that's a, a live-action <laughs> Sofia Coppola movie. It's true. With uh, That's the one where Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray swap bodies, right? Oh, well, what happens is Scarlett Johansson becomes a Ghostbuster. He, it's like a training <laughs> mission that he's over there with. It's Bill Murray that squeezes his boobs. Whatever the dream was I had... I can never remember it, but... But the only thing that does last when I wake up is a sense of loss. So I I do need to go ahead and warn you and our listeners, this probably won't be a uh, bit-by-bit plot recap like uh, we typically do in our episodes. I do have our good friends at Wikipedia here and whoever was so kind as to... um, provide a a plot summation for this but we'll probably cover this in uh chunks and then kind of work backwards from it is the plot summation on wikipedia full of uh arrows pointing backwards and forwards and doing circles (laughs) it's just like that uh charlie day meme where he's got all the (laughs) papers and string on the wall but it's two (laughs) yes but you already called it out it is a body swap movie julio Where's the comedy? We just get the boob squeezing and that's it. Were you longing for the days of uh, Freaky Friday with Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis? I was thinking. I was like, what's wrong, Stu? Did you not like our coverage of Freaky Friday? Or did you like it so much that you wanted us to do it again? Except that this is not as fun. <laughs> it's just really weird. There is, I, I think that, you know, if you tell me, body swap comedy, body swap movie, instantly I think, okay, comedy, because there's no way that you can take that seriously. Uh Secondly, I, I know the formula, right? They're going to swap bodies. They're going to learn things. And then they're going to swap back. And so they they change because of body swap. And uh, it will be silly, funny stuff. I, and uh, even though we all know how body swap works in movies, we're going to spend the first, I don't know, 20 minutes of the movie establishing the rules of the body swap so that then of course. You know, we settle in and we have fun. Uh, not in Japan, apparently. In Japan, they're like, hey, can you maybe guess that this is a body swap movie? All right, go. <laughs> no instructions. Safety not guaranteed. Okay, that's good because I was really worried quickly into this that I missed something pivotal. I was like, okay, I'm at confused. At what point did you figure out that it was a body swap movie? That pretty quick. Well, to be fair, I watched the trailer beforehand, so I knew that was part of it. And I think if you just read like the Google plot line, it's like, ooh, these two people switch 
bodies inexplicably. But we do have immediate reference to this comet. So let's go ahead and, like I said, Julio, we can work backwards from this. Mitsuya Miyamizu is a high school student in a rural town of Itamori, Japan. Bored of the town, she wishes to be a Tokyo boy in her next life. Soon, she begins to intermittently switch bodies with Taki Tashibana, a boy from Tokyo. On certain days, Taki and Mitsuha wake up in each other's bodies and must live the entire day as the other reverting when they go to sleep at night. The two set up ground rules for sharing their bodies, communicating via messages on paper, their phones, and their skin. Mitsuha, in Taki's body, sets up Taki on a date with his co-worker, Miki Okudira, while Taki, in Mitsuha's body, helps Mitsuha become more popular at school. This is somehow, like, not as fun as it sounds. <laughs> is it, for one, is it the lack of jokes? To begin with, <laughs> just no. <laughs> or is it that that guy said, you know, his Western sensibilities or something? One of the quotes. Is that the problem? Maybe, yeah, we're too Americanized, I guess. Right. We're, just, we're too uh, used to the classic setup punchline. <laughs> and so we're not used to a comedy that doesn't have punchlines or setups. It's just. I mean, just it's happening even, in front of us. Yeah, I mean, it's not even a comedy. I guess it's it's more of a body swap romance slash tragedy, right? When did you laugh during this movie? If you did, the boob squeezing, of course, because we're dudes. It wasn't often, Julio. I, I didn't find myself opening my mouth and letting out laughter many times during this. It's uh, it's a weird feeling watching an animated movie and not not at least chuckling you know there was a sense of dread i think from the beginning something unsettling when you start an animated movie and the magic kingdom logo doesn't greet you you're like oh god this is i don't know where we're going i understand we're dealing with uh an animated film to begin with and one with a bit more of a serious tone but you know this ain't big and this ain't the hot chick and we're not dealing with a, a hanks or a schneider here you know Right. These are, these are just drawings. It's, it's a lot harder to connect to that. But really, the problem is that there's no explanation about what's going on until maybe 30 minutes into the movie. And so I feel like when you have a concept like this, you can't really start having fun with it until you set the ground rules. And it's 30 minutes of like, what's going on? <laughs> This girl wakes up, looks in the mirror. Sometimes she's acting weird. Sometimes she's not. The family alludes to it. Her friends allude to it. Then the guy is going through the same thing. So you kind of start piecing it together on your own. But that just feels like work. It doesn't feel like me sitting back and enjoying a movie. I just just tell me. They're swapping bodies. Tell me why. Tell me how it happened. And tell me how they are supposed to fix it. And then set me wild for 90 minutes. Well, well shenanigans happen. And what's the correlation here with this shooting star that we like? It's very obvious from the opening of this movie. There's like a a shooting star that is of great significance and that we're supposed to be waiting for it to come back around. Um, Julio, I personally got lost pretty quick with the timetable because when we first meet uh, Mitsuha, it's they keep referencing yesterday. So we're like a day ahead of where the story started or some shit. And then when we get to uh, Taki, I don't know where we are in his story uh, because we start with him acting weird. And then the next day is when everyone's like, man, you were ye weird yesterday. So I was, I was all over the place. It's some real Dunkirk bullshit. <laughs> Nolan hey, would no. be so happy. 
uh, I had had more problems with just the idea that these two people are losing whole days of their lives and they don't notice. It's not just that, oh, there's like an hour of your day that you don't remember. It's like entire days they go and like do things and it takes them forever. It takes them, it takes them the whole act to figure out that, oh, somebody's taking over my body. <laughs> Well, as we've discussed, you've never been to Vegas, Julio, so you can't quite relate to that. But uh, I, I can understand. I'm a bit more forgiving of that idea. Okay. These are teenagers. <laughs> Touche. And I, not to go too far down this road, but you either make your movie chaste or not, right? If you're going to introduce the idea that when the boy is in the girl's body, he's going to play with her boobs, then give me at least a scene where he, like, goes to take a shower or something. And the same thing for her. Like, there's never, like... I, I feel like teenagers... If you're a teenager and you wake up in the body of the opposite gender, your curiosity would go to, like, a thousand. Right? But yeah. that's never... That's never really touched here. And I'm like, okay, if we're gonna go... If we're gonna treat it that way, then don't have him squeeze her boobs. Because <laughs> that doesn't fit this model of, of uh, asexuality in, in these teenagers. Sis, what are you doing? Whoa, they're so realistic feeling. Well, also, Julia, what were your thoughts on the fact that, like, with uh, Mitsuha, we have, like, an actual story here and, like, character development where she is tired of living in this small town where her dad's the mayor. We find out later she's kind of had a, a rough go of it and, a you know, a bad hand dealt. But here we learn that she just hates being in the small town and wants to get out. Taki, like, doesn't want anything to change, it seems. So it's like it doesn't feel like we're going to learn anything with him. And it doesn't even feel like he's open to someone teaching him things. Because even when she does like set up a date or, you know, changes things for the better, he's like, quit fucking with my shit, yo. <laughs> yeah. What is what is Taki's arc, really? Because they don't really they allude to him being a little uh, bit of a hothead. Right. We, we never get an explanation of what happened to his face at the beginning of the movie. He just has a, a big band. We're not. You're right. Yeah. Uh, but they say, oh, you uh, you can be quiet, but also you get angry quickly or something like that. And then uh, if that changed by the end of the movie, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> they, they set that up and then they drop it. And then I guess he's shy. You know, she's kind of I guess he's introverted. Right. And that's the whole idea behind him sort of having a relationship with his co-worker uh, that goes nowhere. But then by the end of the movie, it also feels like. He's still pretty shy, pretty reserved. It's not like he becomes this extroverted person that suddenly is dating. If anything, (laughs) what happens in the movie makes him retreat even more into his shell. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I I don't see much of a progression on his side. And and that's fine. Okay, so let's say the story is about Mitsuha. All right. But what, what does she... What is her story about? She wants to, I guess it's that she wants to get out. And then at the end of the movie, she's in Tokyo. So she got out <laughs> because she would, won. She won. Yeah, there you go. She she left. She left that uh, small provincial town, man. Disney knows how to do it. You know, even if it's not super funny, they can throw a musical number there and then things are lively. This doesn't, they have, there is a, what, what do you think of that opening song that looks like the opening credits of a TV show? The music in this is very interesting. I assume the music was no different than the version you watched. Were the big like musical set pieces, the lyrics to the music English? Yes. Well, no, no, no. So the, the audio was Japanese, but I had the subtitles. Oh, so the music was actually Japanese. Yeah. 
Oh, so that is a difference in experience because the soundtrack for the one I watched was in English. Was it the killers? It was not. <laughs> it was, it was uh, the Marshall Tucker band. No, um, <laughs> Willie Nelson, <laughs> but the music throughout, like in our montage and whatnot, uh, is very angsty and emotional. So it, it, I think it adds to the effect of the, uh, the teens that we're dealing with here. Um, Another thing that distracted me, though, Alex, uh, you know, these are things that this is why you set up the rules of the world. And if you don't, then it just nags at me. Why are they writing messages on their bodies, on their notebooks, when they both have smartphones? Like, what, well, why would they text each other? I mean, I, I know why they don't text each other, right? By the, eventually, the movie reveals that they're not in the same time, right? She, she lives three years in the past. But they don't know that. So if you once you figure out that you're swapping bodies with this girl that lives somewhere else in the world, why wouldn't you just say, hey, give me your number. Give me a call. Let's talk this out instead of passing notes in between body swaps. That doesn't make any sense. I don't know what to tell you, man. <laughs> I was still trying to pick up on the timeline. I couldn't think that far ahead. I was uh, I, I honestly I hadn't thought about it until halfway through the movie when he tries to call her. And I was like, why didn't you do this 30 minutes ago? You could have saved us two montages at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're too shy. You don't want to call? Send her an email. He doesn't even have to ask her for, for her email address or phone number. He he lives in her body every couple days. So he could just write it down. Send himself an email. Well, in Mitsuha's body, Taki accompanies Mitsuha's grandma, Hitoha and younger sister Yotsuha, to the Shinto shrine on a mountain near Itomori, leaving an offering of Kuchikamazaki made with Mitsuha's spit. All right, real quick, this freaked me out because I've drank uh, a decent <laughs> amount of sake in my life, and I was like, this is what they were fucking doing back there behind the counter? It's like the first time that you uh, find out how they make wine, stomping on it, barefoot. Or isn't there like chewing gum or something that has like whale blubber in it? You know, that's or if that's not true, I remember being told that as a kid, as a, a teacher told us that to like scare us out of chewing gum, you know, getting tired of it, getting stuck under the desks. Saki's one of those things I'd be mad for like the first drink and then be like, oh, well, I don't care anymore because this tastes good. Let's, but, let's assume that it was a hot girl chewing and spitting the rice. Oh, <laughs> that's not really my thing, but, uh, you know. <laughs> If the sake's good enough, I might be able to be talked into it. <laughs> Hitoha explains that God is the ruler of both time and the connections between humans. Mitsuha tells Taki that the comet Tiamat is expected to pass nearest to Earth on the day of the autumn festival. The next day, Taki goes on a date with Miki in his own body. Miki enjoys the date, but says she can tell Taki is preoccupied with someone else. Realizing he is falling for Mitsuha, Taki attempts to call her on the phone, but cannot reach her. The body switching stops as inexplicably as it started. <laughs> this is where the movie's about to get real dark. But before we get there, Alex. Well, there's a few things that I, I want to go back in my notes. So, yeah, take me back. Go over what you need to with me, Julio. Okay. So, first off, uh, Granny. Granny and her explanations are not explanations. I, I thought it was it was half genius, half uh bullshit that they decided to to say, oh well, you know, we can't really explain things 
because you know we have these traditions or we have these rituals, but the explanation behind these rituals got burned a long time ago <laughs> in a massive fire. So we just keep doing it. We don't know why we do them, but that's that's why we do them. I think that that's the movie kind of trying to walk around the idea that uh, well, we're not gonna give you an actual explanation for anything that happens here. You never find out why they were body swapping, why they'd stop body swapping, why is it that sometimes they remember, why is it that then towards the end of the movie they don't remember. We never learn. And I guess we are supposed to just go, oh, well, the explanation for that got burned <laughs> in that big fire all those years ago. Still, we have that scene with the granny where she takes him to the caves and goes on at length about all the, the supernatural uh, underpinnings of you know their their culture i guess and uh it's like whatever i mean i can tell when you're just waving your hand in front of me <laughs> trying to make me forget that, that this movie is not making a whole lot of sense now more interestingly perhaps more disappointingly did you get the feeling that mitsuha was developing feelings for taki's co-worker Yes, because she was sad that she wasn't on the date. It wasn't her right? and okay. Taki's body. Yeah. What happened to that subplot? <laughs> Must be nice. They've probably met up about now. Wow. It was a date I wanted to go on. But if it so happens that you end up going, you better be grateful and enjoy it. I couldn't tell if it was just that she wanted to be with her specifically or was just longing for a relationship. Okay, I mean, but let's be honest, isn't it, doesn't the movie become so much more interesting if it turns out that the whole thing is a way for the filmmaker to explore the idea of, uh, you know, a, a girl that realizes that she's attracted to women. That's why she's not dating anybody in, in her small village. And then she body swaps into the big city and meets a girl there. But she's in the body of a boy, and she, you know, it's it's like being John Malkovich, with Cameron Diaz, getting into Malkovich's head. I'm falling for Catherine Keener. I mean, that's that's the good stuff. And I honestly thought that that's where the story was going. Kaufman back here at the forefront already. <laughs> uh, my assumption, right, just from seeing the poster and just kind of because I've seen movies, I'm like, oh, these two are gonna fall in love, Taki and Mitsuha. And so when the movie started hinting at that, at her. Maybe being gay. I thought, okay, that's awesome. Because I, I did not expect that. So this is not going to be a story about these two kids swapping bodies and falling in love. It's about these two kids swapping bodies. And that's how she uh, comes to terms with her sexuality. I'm like, that's... Okay, that I didn't see coming. I'm not going to see that in a Disney movie. So yeah, bring it. Uh, but no, it just it's not even referenced again. It's just... Uh, we go into the really dark second half of the movie and suddenly they're in love. Like, were you surprised that he was in love with her? That, that Taki suddenly decided that he was in love with Mitsuha? Nah, I've been 16 before. I get it. When a girl writes messages on your cheek and your arm, you're like, this is it. It's meant to be. They did share the one moment where their brains synced up. That was literally blink and you miss it. I thought that was the, the most interesting thing up until that point. Where as Taki, he sees her notebook that she's looking at that says, who am I? I was like, okay. Now we might be getting somewhere. <laughs> uh, jump ahead. We did not. <laughs> I'm sure that was in one of the five or six montages in this movie. So I did blink and I missed it. 
Julio, you have been a waiter before, and I have not. The reason I ask this is we have uh, Taki is a waiter, and he works at what appears to be a pretty nice restaurant. And there's a scene in which a customer complains that there's a toothpick in his pizza, and you know Taki says, "I don't even think we have." toothpicks here and the guy gets mad and you know they end up having a you know power to please it for this guy so <laughs> love that <laughs> love that term so my question becomes to you when you were a waiter did you ever have that happen where someone clearly made something up about some shit or did something that wasn't reversed yours or the kitchen's work to get free food did you ever experience that firsthand uh, not as blatant as this guy but 90% of my waiting tables was at a Japanese slash Korean uh, sushi bar. And they, that was not the, the the American way of like, oh, yeah, we're going to bend over backwards for the customer. The the managers, the, the sushi chefs, they did not take kindly to customers that were trying to be a little too whiny. And really? So, oh, yeah, it was it was amazing. That's why it was such a change of pace when I started working for Cinemark because that was the first time that I was really into the that was really assimilating the the customers always right culture right and to the point where I actually welcomed it when I started at Cinemark I was like oh it's nice I can be nice to people as a waiter you know I was nice to get the tips but if somebody had a, a complaint about the food or something I was like oh god I'm gonna I I can bring it back, but it's not going to end well, you know? So, How long did that last, finding that refreshing, Julio? The customer's always right philosophy. Uh, until I became a manager at Cinemark. <laughs> because as an employee at oh, Cinemark, yeah, I, forgot that. I would just go over to a manager. I always just think of you, that's how I met, was we were managers together there. So I always just assumed you were, yeah, when you're the lowly employee, you can just be like, cool, and then just call a manager to fix it. Yep. <laughs> and you're the manager. Now, let me get like, a manager fuck, for you. Yeah. Yeah. When you're the manager, then you have to go and like smile and try to like act like they make sense. And so that was, um, if you're asking me if I got uh, if I got the shakes just from watching this this scene, if I got angry <laughs> at the how they, as you said, power to please <laughs> these guys. On top of everything, they get their money back and then they uh, they slash the, the girl's uh, skirt. I'm I'm so fascinated by organized crime that my mind immediately was like, ooh, are these guys in the Yakuza? <laughs> what do you think was going to happen when they uh, – because I thought that the, 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 we get a close-up of the knife, of the, the blade that the guy pulls out. And I was like I, – I thought there was going to be a reveal of a close-up of him having a, a, a box of uh, toothpicks, right? <laughs> Just in case you didn't get it. It's like, oh, no, they did put them in. But no, it was like a blade. I was like, what does that mean? And then, you know, a scene later. She has a she has a slash on her skirt, but yeah. Overall, this was a I don't know. I, I've never waited tables in Japan. I don't know if the customers always right culture also is as prevalent there. I thought that they shouldn't have given them anything. I would have been like, "That's we don't use toothpicks here, sir." Due to Cinemark's philosophy of the customers always right, I once had to give a man and his family their money back for seeing. Um, Darren Aronofsky's Noah because it was quote historically inaccurate. That's what he told me, and he wanted his money back. <laughs> but you want him to come back, Alex? You want him to come back for the wrestler? I, that was after the wrestler. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. You want him to come back for fuck the whale? Yeah, uncouth bastard. Uh, 
Sure, why not? My brain immediately went to uh, Adventureland, though. It's just like, oh, she saved him from the potential hostile customers, so now they're going to hit it off. And they, they did. I did like that uh, she remained around as just like a friend, but it all happened so fast. She just made up her mind. She's like, nope, no, thank you. And <laughs> this was a terrible date. <laughs> yeah. And the, the frustrating part of that was, you know, that woman, uh, was it Miki was her name? She's obviously like the Wendy Peppercorn of this <laughs> restaurant they work at. So he yes. had his chance and just blew it and then didn't really seem to care. He's more interested in fucking Patrick Swayze over here and making a, <laughs> a vase with her. Uh, it's even more frustrating, Alex, because. Like you said, she sticks around, and yes, she's a friend, but you kind of get the feeling that at any point, he could just go for it, and she'd be okay. But he doesn't. Taki, Miki, and their friend Sukasa travel to Hidi, I believe, to search for Mitsuha. Taki does not know the name of Mitsuha's village, so he sketches the landscape from memory. A restaurant owner in Takayama recognizes the town as Itamori and offers to take Taki and his friends. Now, it's important to call out here when he does bring up it's Itimori. This is where Taki gets very excited, but uh, some pretty bad news uh, accompanies it. And this kind of was like, oh, fuck, this was a, a swerve. I have it in my notes here. Swerve in all caps. When they <laughs> arrive, they find the town is almost entirely decimated by fragments that fell from the Tiamat. That was the uh, comment that we mentioned earlier. Since the comet passed three years earlier, Taki realizes that he and Mitsuha were separated by three years. Her living in 2013, and he in 2016. He finds Mitsuha's name among the 500 people killed by the comet's impact. Taki begins to lose his memories of Mitsuha, seeing her messages disappear from his phone. In a panic, he races to the shrine and drinks the Kujikamazaki. He has a vision and recalls that Mitsuha once came to Tokyo to find him, though he did not recognize her. She gave him a ribbon that he has worn ever since. All right. Like I said, we're covering big chunks here at a time. I was going to say, I wish that the movie had given me those revelations in such a concise and clear manner. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If that sounds a tad confusing, just imagine watching it in a way more ambiguous way. Yeah, where it's all like intercut with different timelines, different characters, (laughs) a voiceover. All right, Halissa, tell me, what is this? What are we thinking here? It's not Sixth Sense because that all happens at once. What's a movie about time hopping like this? There's got to... The, I mean, I already, the, already used my Dunkirk joke, so <laughs> got to go somewhere else for this. 12 Monkeys? 12 Monkeys. That's a good one. That's a good one. When he, was, uh, when he starts forgetting her towards the end and he starts doubting what's real, what's not, I, I did get 12 Monkeys vibes there. But we, we covered 12 Monkeys on the show. We did point out that maybe it's not as airtight as it should be, but it's so much more well put together than what's going on in your name as far as the, the logistics of the time travel and the, the relationships, the, the cause and consequence of, you know, you do something in the past and then it affects the future. This is just very, again, because they they keep things so vague, you can't really tell what is going to happen. It's still here. This was Yotsuha's, and this was mine. This was before the comet. So when I switched places with her, it was also three years in the past. Our times got tangled somehow. This is half of her. 
Okay, so he drinks the the sake, the really nasty, chewed and spit and three years old sake that's that he finds underground, and that somehow transports him back into her body three years ago. How were we supposed to know? How was he supposed to know that that would you know that somehow out of all the rambling that the grandma did last time he was there, he managed to pull out that theory it was like oh yeah i must drink the sake because that's gonna take me back like that doesn't make sense you know but it's just like it just happens because in this movie things just happen now once he travels back i was like all right i think i know what the rest of the movie is gonna be i i think i'm finally in familiar territory again right he's gonna try to change the past is he knows that the comet is gonna fall uh on this town so he's going to try to change that now I had no idea what the plan was because I was like, how do you, you know, what is this, Armageddon? I mean, <laughs> you can't. Um, I was a little underwhelmed by the solution. Uh, but still, if you're going to do that kind of stuff, I think that you need to, you benefit from from setting up the, the rules so that I can follow with the protagonist and be like, okay, there's this checklist of things that he needs to do. So I'm with him as he's checking him off and I'm I'm appreciating the progression of the story and the, how he he's, getting closer to completing the mission here. It's just, uh, it was just really hard to figure out like what was happening, you know, going, I mean, we're like halfway through the movie at this point, Alex, where you, uh, you wrote swerve and then spent what, like 20 minutes trying to catch up. All right. I'm going to be completely honest with you here. This is a little bit of real talk, I guess. I thought when he drank that sake, that it basically killed him. And I thought like him, because in that sequence, after he drinks it, he basically sees Mitsuha's entire life. He, he kind right. of like lives through it, the the ups and the downs. And when he meets her, I thought that was him. Like, I thought she was dead and he was moving on. And I was like, this is bleak as fuck. So I was kind of uh, pleased when it became like, oh, we're going to make things good again. Um, that, that was a, a bit less heavy than I was expecting. I mean, it is still really heavy really really uh dark because you're not up till now whether you were finding it funny or not it is kind of a light-hearted you know relationship story <laughs> if you don't want to call it a rom-com it is still about two people that lo- it looks like they're gonna fall in love and then you have that big reveal of the comet eradicating this town and it's just they leave no room for doubt, right? He's going through the list of the people that died and he name checks pretty much everybody that we've seen there, you know, the her friends and I don't know if he name checks the little sister, but basically there's no survivors. So even though you don't see it happen, it's still just such a downer. I'm like, it's like okay. A, a legit like tragedy. <laughs> yeah. It's like, where do we go from here? And there was a part of me that thought, okay, if we can somehow steer this ship through the troubled waters of tragedy and arrive at an ending that somehow acknowledges how sad this is and allows him to move on. Uh, you know, if he learns something from this horrible supernatural uh, thing that just happened to him, then that's awesome, right? Like maybe through the this really weird relationship he developed with somebody that was living three years in the past and that's already dead and all that stuff, maybe through this relationship he learns to appreciate and and talk to the girl that likes him in the present, Mickey, his coworker. And I was like, all right, you know, that is, it's a very unusual way to get there. And it's kind of 
it's still not as happy-go-lucky as I would have liked the movie to be, but at least that, that gets somewhere. But no, I mean, by the end of the movie, they've kind of backpedaled all of it. <laughs> What's the point of giving me a big tragedy and a big gut punch when you're going to cheapen it later by by just completely taking away its power, right? Like, we, we do get a happy ending uh, uh, 20, 30 minutes later, and it's it, it was disappointing. I was like... I, I as as unpleasant as it was to find out that this was that the entire town was dead, I thought that there was an opportunity there to really go somewhere else, somewhere that we don't see often in what I consider, you know, this type of movie. But no, they they back off. Um, so you thought that he was dead for a moment. Okay, I was gonna say because the next ten fifteen minutes, while he's out there interacting with everybody in the past, <laughs> they must have been extra confusing. Yeah, like I thought he was dying and I thought like basically what was going to happen is when they finally met, that was like them both realizing they were in the afterlife. Um, so Potentially a better movie. <laughs> I, I didn't think that far ahead, but I've had time to formulate where my mind was at the time. Um, Taki awakens in Mitsu's body on the morning of the festival where he Toha speaks directly to him, explaining that the body switching phenomenon has always been in their family. This goes by pretty quick for this movie in two hours long. Probably could have, you know, stretched this a bit longer and uh, flushed it out a bit. Um, it's, it's literally like one line. It is. It's, uh, oh, it happened to you too. Yeah, it's a Rob Lowe character in uh, Thank You for Smoking. He's like, oh, we'll just explain it with one line. Thank God we invented the blah, blah, blah. Uh, the first Avengers where it's Thor. It's like, it's- oh, damn magic. <laughs> Realizing he has a chance to save Mitsuha and the entire town, Taki convinces Mitsuha's friends to help him broadcast an emergency signal evacuating Itomori before the meteor fragments strike. He then heads to the shrine where Mitsuha has just woken up in Taki's body. As twilight falls, their timelines cross, allowing them to meet each other in person for the first time. Taki returns Mitsuha's ribbon, and they attempt to write down their names on each other's palms, but Twilight ends before Mitsuha can write hers. All right, this Twilight thing, I guess I just realized you have to pay attention earlier in the movie that there's a classroom scene where the phenomenon of Twilight's being taught. Not the Stephanie Meyer's young adult novels, but uh, the actual phenomenon of Twilight. I guess this idea of right at sunset before... I don't fucking know. Julio, this part probably confused me the most of all. They couldn't see each other, and then for like 30 seconds, they could. Explain it to me. Uh, Magic. (laughs) (laughs) They just, they both turn to the camera and go, your name. (laughs) 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 And what irritated me was that they waste so much time in banter. Right? The town, they need to save the town, <laughs> but they're talking about her boobs and just how mean he was to her and how rude she was to him and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, the clock is ticking. <laughs> you know, it, they waste so much time that they don't even get to finish writing each other's names on, on their hands. So it, he doesn't he doesn't even write his name. He's such a dumbass. He doesn't write his name. He writes, I love you on her hand. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Why make a plan if you're not going to follow through? Exactly. His plan was, we'll do this so we remember each other's names, and then they don't remember each other's names at all, because he (laughs) completely fumbles it in both counts. Teenagers, I guess. That's that's, that's really how you explain it. They're teenagers. There you go. Give me an adult that knows how to handle these situations. Give me Indiana Jones. (laughs) Indiana Jones on the dial of your name. 
She returns to the village to see that the evacuation plan failed, but convinces her father, the mayor, to order an evacuation. All right. Off the, screen. Off screen. Yes. I was about to say, this is not something you see play out. In fact, you think the worst for a few moments. Beginning to forget Taki, she discovers that he wrote, I love you on her hand instead of his name. Taki awakens in his own timeline with no memory. Five years later, Taki is a university graduate struggling to find a job. He's obsessed with the impact of Tiamat when the villagers of Itamori were miraculously saved by a fortuitous evacuation drill, but cannot remember why. So there you go. This is how you learn it. We actually watched the <laughs> comet hit Itamori and think that they just all died again. Think that it failed. Right. It's actually pretty fucking intense. And I, I pumped my fist. I was like, all right, what are flaws this movie has? They are they're like Nicholas Winden Refn and the Neon Demon. They're just committing to the grimness <laughs> of the ending. But then, like I said, full on backpedaling. A fragment of the comet destroyed a town in that disaster. But miraculously, most of the people living in the town were unhurt. The town happened to be holding an emergency drill that day, and most of its residents were outside the impact zone. Were you? Did you feel betrayed, Alex, when slowly they revealed that no, nobody died? I didn't feel betrayed until we get the fucking Slumdog Millionaire ending here. <laughs> One day, he glimpses Mitsuha, who has moved to Tokyo. They race to find each other. As they pass the stairs of a shrine, Taki calls out for Mitsuha, and the two simultaneously ask for each other's name. Uh, now, that's not exactly how it plays out. They see... <laughs> When he finds her, he has this moment of realization like, I don't actually know this person. And I guess the payoff here is he's been a very timid and uh, not very outgoing or confident man throughout the movie. And he actually just here is like, I think I know you. <laughs> and she says, I think the same thing. And then, yeah, they both just simultaneously say, may I ask your name? Excuse me, sir. May I ask your name? <laughs> may, may you kindly. And then uh, Someday by Sugar Ray plays in your name. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's uh, Jai Ho. Jai Ho, yes. The entire cast comes out to dance on those steps. Um, I think it's because how much I <laughs> love the way the ending of Slumdog Millionaire is shot. But I was literally like, are they going to do this shit where he like spots her <laughs> on the other side of the train? <laughs> uh, it was... As we were talking about it, I just realized that really her arc, I think, is supposed to be that she finally stands up to her father, right? Er yes. Early in the movie, she's walking by and her dad shames her in front of his constituents, I guess. And uh, her big moment, which again happens off screen, is that she goes <laughs> to tell him, hey, you need to evacuate the town. We never see it happen. They choose to not show us the most important moment in this character's uh, arc mm -hmm. for the sake of making us believe that she's dead. So for a cheap surprise, a cheap twist of, oh, fooled you, they actually sacrifice what would have been the most powerful moment, right? You see her finally stand up to her father and tell him what's what. And uh, for what? I mean, I, I don't think, I, I think you need to be very invested in this relationship, in this romance to get a jolt out of them reuniting. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, it was the opposite for me. I was I was bummed because I think that it's a much better ending if they do all this and they still can't change the past, 
right? Even with all the time travel and the knowledge of what's Terminator to come. Terminator 3, baby. Yes, yes. We disagree <laughs> on many things about that movie, Alex, but the ending, right? It's it's so powerful. They they could have changed it, but they couldn't really. It's just some tragedies are just set in stone. It's just going to happen because that's just what humanity is like. And even when you have a girl uh, that knows what's going to happen and, and she managed to convince some of her friends of, of that and they have a somewhat solid plan on how to evacuate the town it still doesn't happen because in the end most people are stubborn or stupid or both and they're just not gonna they're just not gonna do what's necessary to save themselves so i thought that that was great <laughs> the the five or six shots we get of the comet hitting the town and everything exploding and it's like right well this is how you grow up tacky and even more so, I think that the fact that we come back from that, that he doesn't even remember, and now he just kind of lives with that that feeling of something is missing, but I don't even know what. That was good. I, I thought that we were heading towards a really heartbreaking, bittersweet ending. But no. First, he overhears her friends at a, at a coffee shop, and then he uh, first he walks past her, right, on the street. And he's like, wait, is that? And then they keep walking. And then they see each other on the train a different day, which is like, how small is Tokyo? <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> it's literally the biggest city in the world. <laughs> <laughs> He's more likely to run into Bill Murray, taking it back to Lost <laughs> in Translation, than he is to run into this girl again. But Dog, no, it happens. The ending of sex in the city that I absolutely abhor is more realistic than the ending of this movie when Carrie just runs into big again in Paris. <laughs> Do they ask each other for their names? <laughs> uh, that's actually probably better dialogue than whatever they say. But <laughs> in the city of Tokyo, 39 million people, but they did all right here. And that's it. We don't get to hear the answer. It just goes into the credits. Who'd you get uh, as your... Which band took you out? Because now you've established you were, you were hearing songs in English. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who, who the bands were. It sounded good. It really matched the tone of the movie. Um, so no complaints. But yeah, the lyrics were in English. I'm assuming that all the songs in the Japanese version are from the same band. and They, they get called out at the very beginning, the opening credits. So I can um, tell you the name, but... Rad Wimps? Yes. Yeah. Looks like the lead vocalist of the rock band composed the theme music for Your Name. The director requested him compose it in a way that the music would supplement the dialogue or monologue of the characters. Right on. (laughs) I wonder if they also recorded the English versions as well. possible. Yeah. All right, so that was your name, Alex. Not my name, not her name, yours. The answer that we don't hear is Taki saying Alex Mattis. A movie that was a complete sensation, uh, a hidden one to me. The things I was reading about it, I was blown away. It was a, it was a success that my brain immediately went to the untouchables of something that really caught fire internationally and seems like it did pretty respectably over here uh, domestic for us as well. Um, so does that mean Julio and I felt the way we uh, have been indicating for the past hour or did we also fall for the sensation? 
I think it's time we move to real talk to learn not only your name, but your feelings, Julio. <laughs> it's fucking awful. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to real talk. 